0: This is Decentralized, the Decentralized Trials and Research Podcast. We gather here with friends and guests to talk about the latest ways to make research and clinical trials around the world more inclusive, more accessible, more resilient, and more sustainable, all by using decentralized methods. This podcast is recorded live on Clubhouse every Friday, 12 to 1 Eastern on the TGIF DCT show at the Decentralized Trials Club. You can join the live sessions and add your voice every Friday at noon Eastern time with the free Clubhouse app by following the Decentralized Trials Club. And of course, subscribe to this podcast on your favorite platform to get notified of new episodes following the club and subscribing will also help you stay current for any of the bonus content we may drop and now it's time to decentralize hello and welcome to tgif dtt this is our weekly gathering here on clubhouse where we talk about all things decentralized clinical trials we cover a range of topics with guests from across the research community joining us each week. These topics have ranged in weeks past from those that are more technical around data and interoperability to human factors around experience, access, representation, and diversity straight through to some that are around policy and the macro environment from the workforce to other considerations around global regulation. Uh, We also though always have an opportunity to lean into what people are working on together to make the ecosystem better. Uh, This week, that's the direction we're going to take. But before we do that, just a couple of quick reminders. If you don't follow the Decentralized Trials Club, give it a tap on the upper left of your page. You can follow the club and from there, get some notifications about what's coming up, what's getting started. Uh, You will be able to, from the club page, scroll back in time and access the replays from well over a year's worth of content on so many of those different topics, and be able to scroll ahead to some of the previews of what's coming up in the weeks ahead. What's coming up in the weeks ahead, you may ask? Well, here's one breadcrumb. Next week, we'll be talking about whether treating physicians can prescribe a clinical trial and what role decentralized technologies can play. In making that happen and we'll have some of the uh folks who are recurring uh faces in our audience like brad hightower scott stout ted barterson uh, come join us on that topic um but before we jump in any further amir i feel like i haven't seen you or spoken to you in a while how are you doing today my friend
1: well it hasn't been that long uh, i'm great that you um survived your meetings this week
0: Yes, I like. Uh, Thirty one hundred of my closest friends were down in Orlando at the Scope yeah. Summit this week, and it was it was nice to see people back out and about together.
1: That's great. I'm doing very well home this week. Uh, I'll be on the road for the next couple of months. It seems constantly, but happy to be in California today.
0: Now Jane and I had the opportunity to roll together to MCO and navigate through TSA together yesterday. So Jane, hopefully you're back home and safe and sound from your travels.
2: Yes, indeed, smooth travels. And Craig, I'm just gonna say you have what I'm gonna call scope voice, which is clearly an outcome from lots of wonderful conversations with people in person. So uh, I'm so glad to see everyone out and thinking about how to make things better together.
0: Well, I, I, I also have scope feet, which is, um, you know, we did see Jane, at least one, one friend with a pair of uh, bloody feet after, uh, after moving around too much on feet over the last few days. So um, I'm glad that you can only hear my voice and not have to see my feet. That's a win for everybody.
1: You know, Craig, at some point, people keep asking me, you should do a blog about what you're supposed to wear, what tech you should carry, and all that stuff for all the
0: travels. Uh, that's a great topic. I think uh, maybe two weeks from now, stay tuned on DCT with your your conference and travel tips, now that we're still in Q1 and planning out for the year, because it's, it's what do you bring and what can you manage to leave behind? Amir, do you ever leave your laptop behind for travel? How many days can you go?
1: Uh, uh, well, only in Antarctica, because as you know, it could only do 40 pounds total, so no laptop just there. I actually downgraded uh, some tech, so I installed the iPad Pro. Uh, I've actually moved to an iPad Mini and uh, a lovely Logic keyboard that goes with it, and I'll tell you, it's been a f- And if you go on YouTube, I be amazed how many tech YouTubers I didn't realize this until afterwards have all done the same, and they all rave about the new iPad Mini. It's so small, it's comfortable in your hand i found the pro just too big if you're trying to read something so if you're trying to be light for sure you know unless you're doing detailed spreadsheets the ipad mini is a really good option i still i take two laptops but that's the whole other story
0: oh i am so psyched when i made it through a week like this with nothing but an ipad error i did uh i did let go of my mini personally i thought the The keyboards were just a little too small for me. Uh, Maybe I am trying to do spreadsheets on it. iPad Pro, maybe a little too laptop-ish as an alternative to bringing my regular laptop. Jane, are you ever able to uh, hit the road and leave the laptop behind?
2: You know that my work bag is actually part of my core strength program, so no
0: that quote work bag is definitely a workout bag i've seen uh, i've seen you hauling that beast around behind you it deserves its own little uh segway scooter to 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 uh to maneuver around well uh we can talk about travel tips with mike and dan but first why don't we uh learn a little bit about who is joining us here today so Today's topic, we're gonna be talking about some of the work coming out of one particular DTRA initiative that's been focused on best practices. And one of the first questions around understanding what is a best practice is how can we even define what is a best practice? Um, So I'm really excited to have these two friends with us here today that have been helping to lead team around defining this and understanding this together. Why don't we jump right in, Dan Debonis? It's a pleasure to have you here. Uh, Do me a favor and let's take a click backwards. Introduce yourself for folks that haven't had the pleasure. What is it you do by day, Dan?
3: (laughs) Yeah, thanks, Craig. And making notes for best practices for travel. I think that's probably our next uh, initiative here. Um, Yeah, my my title is I'm a a principal at Signet Health and primarily focused on uh, how we approach technology and methodologies and combine them with data and evidence, uh, in, uh, primarily neuroscience trials. Um, but of course, you know, I think part, part of that is understanding that, that this is all has to be done in an ecosystem, which includes, uh, you know, sites, regulators, um, you know, participants, caregivers often. So, you know, kind of thinking through the, the impact of what sponsors are, I think, trying to do with their, outcome measures and objectives and kind of the downstream impact of how you conduct the trial with all your key stakeholders. So that's kind of the the role I have. And I I have the opportunity to work with some great researchers. Um, Some of my best friends in the industry are are sites that I've met and known for 20 years from doing this. And um, originally, I was uh, a co founder of a company called Concord and Raider Systems, which, you know, kind of our, our idea with Gary Sachs was how can you improve the quality of data? but with the collection of the data rather than just collecting, improve it. Can you enhance the way, uh, the quality of the study by doing that? And so we've kind of followed the same theme for about 20 years. And um, again, really just just an incredible uh, ecosystem that we exist in and I've been fortunate to be a part of for those 20 years.
0: I, I just learned something already so far today, Dan. I didn't realize that that was your backstory with Concordant and Raider systems. That's, that's a pretty cool uh, story and a pretty cool part of the journey for you uh, navigating around this space for as long as you have.
3: That was a thing, yes, Craig, and, and I can date myself by saying that um, when we designed our first uh, system, we used fax modem switches to transmit data, so. <laughs> uh, the, the F word.
0: FACTS. Okay. (laughs) Well, with that, why don't we introduce Mike. Mike, it's great to have you here. Share a little bit about who is Mike and what is it that you
4: do by day? Thanks, Greg. Uh, And and no reference to FACTS in my day by day. Um, I'm actually a uh, director in PwC's pharmaceutical R&D practice. And essentially, we are helping companies think through any managerial challenges they might encounter in the R&D space. Uh, My particular specialty is within DCT trial applications, uh, capability investments, and understanding what does DCT mean to an R&D ecosystem, uh, both from a people, process, and technology perspective. Um, Of course, that's led to some very interesting conversations with both clients and peers in the organization, as well as getting connected with Dan here and and kind of bringing our minds together with our broader team. Uh, My background prior to PwC, I'm a pharmacist by training. I did my postdoc in cardiovascular research, worked in industry in cardiovascular research for years uh, before switching to PWC. And I'm based out of Chicago and two weeks back from paternity with a a beautiful baby girl that that is happy and healthy. So happy to be here today. Wow. You know, I I
0: love having uh, friends on Clubhouse who have newborn babies. Uh, Sometimes Aaron Nelson lets us, or sorry, Nelson lets us uh, hear from his little baby in the background. So we'll see if uh, if Mike, if uh, if you, if if you're a little one chooses to join us here today. Um, Mike and Dan are, I think, examples of of leaders who are, you know, have busy day jobs in the field and also roll up their sleeves through ecosystems like DTRA to try to make the operating environment better for everybody and raise all boats. And Mike, I I do have to give a little bit of a side shout out that um, when I was wrapping up at Scope, I did get to run into Andy Greenberg, Ah, who I know uh, is is now over there on Team PwC. That's right. And the reason that I'm name dropping Andy Greenberg is not just to say I know a guy. But Andy Greenberg is another example of somebody rolling up his sleeves. When Andy was with Accenture, he stepped up with DTRA in its earliest days and um, brought some Ah. great resources and team members to really help us in day zero. When Amir and I were just bringing this community together and needed to define our priorities and our initiatives and it's just an example to me and Amir I know we have, we're fortunate to have a couple of hundred examples of amazing busy people rolling up their sleeves like that but I just thought I'd give out a a shout out to uh, folks like Andy that did that with us uh, at day zero,
4: remember way back when. That's great to know. I'm going to, I'm going to have to give Andy a call after this.
0: (laughs) (laughs) See, now he's going to listen to the replay so that uh, he knows he got the, he got the good (laughs) shout out. Jane, you're, you're another great example of this, you know, finding this balance between your day job and rolling up your sleeves. And I don't know, Jane, do you have thoughts for other people that like Mike, Dan, yourself, you know, how do you find that balance in terms of, um being able to contribute to the greater good and you know keep the lights on at work
2: i don't think i strive for balance i'm going to be honest um and that isn't let me say this i worked for a leader a while back who said there's really no such thing as balance there's just decisions so you've got to choose where you want to spend your time and commit to it
0: you know i think uh, we have so many people in our field that are so mission driven you know i feel like if if you just wanted a job to make money there are a lot of easier verticals you could go into and the people in our space they want to do well while doing good and you know we we work by day and try to keep our organizations moving forward to do well but we're we're all i think many of us are are very mission driven and wanna see this category do better for the people that we're serving. And so it's great to have people, Dan, Mike, Jane, like all of you for for what you're doing to make that happen. Well, let's talk a bit about some of the work you've been making happen. Um, I'm not sure where to start with uh whether that's Dan or Mike, but uh perhaps one of you whoever is m- ready to go first uh talk a bit about what was the problem you were looking to address with this particular initiative dan um what was the what was the problem that you were looking to tackle
3: well i think if you know, if we, taking a step back when DTRI was first formed kind of in the um kind of first wave of covid um you know I think it, it, there was there' was the question of you know getting the leadership to define um, I don't know if there were work streams I can't remember exactly what what we call these. so I, I think and in, in certainly kind of best practices you know with a mind to you know that, that there has to be some underlying credibility there has to be some underlying guidance here to how we're going to approach this knowing that You know, there was there wasn't a lot there. There wasn't the regulatory framework that at the time, like Big Pharma didn't necessarily have uh, groups dedicated to this that they might have now. So I think that that's where this originally came from. And then I think the decision was made for a um, uh, kind of like a best practices handbook. And really, it was, you know, it it kind of evolved to where we ended up um, because, you, you know, the the challenge, I think a lot of times when you start getting into an area like okay what is the best practice Um, you you know we ended up the the conversations will devolve into almost like you were writing them as opposed to thinking about the framework for them and um, I think you know once we got going over that hump and you know I think that's where Mike's background really came in helpful because he you know he took a probably a broader view than some of us that may have um, subject matter expertise in certain areas and you know i think that that the rubric so we just keep coming back to that you know these have to be guidelines these have to be um you know a, a something that that any group can look at and, and run through and get a result from so um again mike maybe for your your perspective because coming from the consulting world um you know you may have looked at it a little bit differently at least than i did initially
4: Th- thanks Dan. Yeah, it's it, it's interesting. We we all we're all problem solvers when it comes to this this passion for DCT and we want we want to provide solutions, we want to give the answers and and what's always first in mind is what we've experienced. And so when we started our discussions with our broader our broader team and I have to give credit to the broader team that support the workshop and they brought very dynamic um engagement and experience and, and lots of great ideas to generate from. But as we as we realized, there there was all kinds of ideas of what a best practice could be, both from the DTRI community and peer communities that had already been publishing ideas of what a best practice is. And we realized early on that there was a couple of hurdles that we had to balance for. What one was just level setting. What what does it mean to be a best practice? What is the level of detail? How do we determine if it's best versus just a practice? And and how do we qualify it? And and the second is who is the best practice for? We we all have inherent bias of who when we think of best practices. Is it best practice for a provider? Is it best practice for a patient? Is it best practice for a sponsor? And understanding that DTRA is an organization that represents all of the above and more, we wanted to be very, very diligent on how we thought about and defined a best practice before just jumping in feet first and listing 50 ideas of what a best practice could be. And ultimately that's why we landed on a rubric in a way that we can further evaluate practices across the industry and have a consistent standard of what we define as a best practice while still not dictating how a company or a physician's office or engagement with a patient should operate because ultimately translating a practice into a, a tool for a specific circumstance has to rely on the individuals running either the trial or the engagement itself and it was a very unique and in, in often laborious journey early on, but I, I think it led us to a very good spot of actually having a way to evaluate consistently across the industry.
0: So, what are some of the key attributes when when uh, when you're looking at what was created, and when you're when you're thinking about some of the key attributes of this best practices evaluation framework? Anything there that surprised you in terms of what made it in or wound up on the cutting room floor? Dan,
3: well, there was a lot that ended up on the cutting room floor. I think because I, I think we we originally ended up, you know, we started maybe with like eight areas that we we looked at, Mike. Um, yep. You know, domains of the rubric, and and ended up, you know, kind of less is more really was was the theme here. But I, you know, I think the one place that we started, and I think it's number one on the rubric, was, um, and I give credit to Mike for this, for kind of identifying this right away, was evidence of success. And I think the, the wording, as I'm reading it here. Best practice should be measurable and demonstrable success. Should have, sorry, measurable and demonstrable success. Um, and, you know, because I think we we looked around. There were a lot of groups doing really good work, and you know, the, the things were changing so quickly um, in the time that we were working. You know, we started with this, I think, in late 2020. If I'm getting the time frame right, Mike. Um, yep. And so, you know, I think that once we started anchoring in that, I think it became a lot easier. You know, the concept of evidence of success—that you know there there been you know you're not if you're almost you know like thinking about this like a clinical trialist, you've got to kind of determine what am I going to measure and you know what what question am I asking as I go through this. And I, that that was really central. I think once we got there, then it was really just a matter of you know prioritizing and you know, kind of think, thinking about who really were the key stakeholders um and and kind of recognizing that you, you know you're not going to serve everybody but if you kind of start with that place of uh you need a kpi you need something to measure then then uh, then that makes it a lot clearer
0: mike any other uh surprises in your mind in terms of what made it in or what might have been left behind
4: I think um, what really was beneficial of having a fairly uh, disparate types of backgrounds joining the core team is that I, I have a personal bias to think on the sponsor's perspective on how to run trials, how to prepare for trials, uh, what technologies to apply to trials. But with our, our group, we really started digging more into, you know it's great if it works well for the sponsor, but we have to hone in, why why do we do DCT? Ultimately, we're trying to improve the patient experience. We're trying to reduce friction in the system which can benefit the patients it can increase diversity it can increase geographies of where patients are pulled from and actually it led to the our pillar number two is that in addition to evidence of success does it work are we actually seeing an improvement in the patient experience and and for for all the ideas that can come with the various types of dct applications whether it's a technology application or process application are we keeping in mind how the patients are living day by day and is it, is it truly more useful that they don't go to the site or are they having to access five different types of logins to, to document their patient reported outcomes and maybe they still want to go to the site. And so it really started to move away from, okay, let's, let's talk about did it work and how to apply it in a clinical trial to, okay, does it work, but who are the primary stakeholders and how are they impacted? Is it the patient's impact? Is it the site impact? How are physicians being impacted? What's the burden on the sponsor sites? Um, it, it really became a, a much more broad discussion about the, broader, uh, the ecosystem of clinical trials that I personally wasn't anticipating early on, but it, it has much more impact now.
0: So Mike, when you're thinking about how people can use this type of rubric, certainly you know, one use case may be that a DTRA we're now going to be in a place to welcome the research community to submit potential best practices that we can help evaluate against that rubric and help to aggregate, socialize, and share through, uh, through our externally facing resources for the, for the research community. How else do you see people being able to take advantage of a rubric like this? Do you, is there an opportunity for me to use this internal to my own organization?
4: It's a great question, Craig, because we, we, we wanted to really think about where's where the need in the industry? And and ultimately there is there's two primary types of needs that were identified. I know Dan and I've talked a lot about this. One is providing best practices to the industry that you're alluding to through through a DTRA or, or other organizations. And and what's interesting here is that the, the true need from let's just say a sponsor perspective, it's it's how can this be applied to my specific circumstance? And what we're realizing is best practices are, are helpful to broaden uh, an organization's thinking, but the more specific details on how a best practice was applied really creates a more holistic understanding of the importance of best practice, why it's important to think about uh, the patient pool that you're engaging with from their ability to use modern technologies. And so, so one lens is as best practices are published you using this rubric, we wanna have a consistent approach to what is the best practice and what is the case study where it was used. And that doesn't necessarily dictate to an organization that that's how they need to apply it in their study, but it provides a lot more context in that where we're balancing between not necessarily an ethereal, here's an idea of a best practice, but we're also on the other spectrum where this is exactly how you need to apply the best practice. Now, if you're a sponsor organization with this rubric, you can begin to have a more thoughtful dialogue during protocol design and potential utilizing potential DCT technologies regarding, okay, we can no longer think about this from just our sponsor perspective, but what is the regulatory impact? How is it different in Germany versus the US when we're thinking about potential utilization of e-consent via DCT mechanism? What is the side impact? Are we going to have 10 different logins <laughs> for the investigators as they're being applied? Do we need a central patient portal? It, it ideally begins to expand the discussion to actually be most beneficial to all the players in the ecosystem. And and hopefully as DTRI begins to present more and more best practices, the the users of those best practices have a better foundation of information to leverage as they're running their trials. Dan, does that resonate on your side?
3: Yeah, absolutely, and I think you know in practice, it's probably the types of things that um, many of us do when you know, especially if it, those of us that work directly with sponsors on trial design and implementation of technology or methodologies. But you know, I think that the the idea that you know the uh, um, um, maybe unintended consequences of decisions that are made, um, I think that's that's really often a blind spot, and, and hopefully. Um, one of the areas, you know, one of the one of the key reasons to do it this way, and to you know, kind of include thing you know, like patient experience, site impact, um, you know, the area, the the, you know, is it is it technically feasible? Is it operationally feasible? And then, um, you know, the regulatory and, and um, you know ethics that are involved. So, you know, I think as it. As we started thinking about this, from you know, going back to your original question, what ended up on the cutting room floor, I think we 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 zeroed in on these areas because those are the ones that that um, you know I think in practice we ended up dealing with on a on a daily basis. Uh, However, may not you know with with new implementations of technologies or methodologies, um, you know may may not always be first and foremost because again, you know maybe that hasn't been done or has been done at scale. And hopefully this allows you know a sponsor or a group to kind of think through that or um, provides a you know a framework to do that.
0: Well, we are coming up on the bottom of the hour. So in that few minutes we'll open up the room if there are any questions, thoughts, or perspectives, either about what you're hearing from Dan and Mike about this particular rubric, about best practices in decentralized trials more broadly about initiatives in this space or other topics that are interesting and important to you. Jane, based on what you're hearing so far and your proximity to the fabulous work that's been going on here, thoughts, questions, perspectives.
2: Yeah, I have one that's been on my mind for a few minutes now and I see Dina is in the audience with us and I know that one of the areas of focus in your rubric is about patient experience, so I would love to hear from you and maybe Dina too. How do you think that rubric and the patient journey outputs might be helpful together, or can help each other evolve?
3: Yeah, I think. Um, yeah, I think Jane. You know, one thing we didn't we didn't cover at the beginning was um, yeah you know, that. that when we first thought about this, we, we did organize kind of the best practices around what we, we termed the trial life cycle. And, you know, I think that, that, that's kind of where may have, I may have been going with, with my comments earlier is, you know, there's, and, and I'm trying to recall these from memory. It can go to the site, but, you know, program planning. Okay. What are your objectives? The trial planning. Okay. Now this is becoming real. How do you, you know, how do you kind of quantify this? How do you distill this down to a protocol or, or a set of procedures you setup. up? your conduct, and then your closed and analysis. And I think, you know, from, from, from that, you know, if you have those goals of, you know, patient experience, you're thinking about it through those different steps, then it doesn't get lost because, you know, I think that the, the challenge obviously is, you know, everyone goes in with these, with those types of goals, improve the patient experience, and that's part of your planning, maybe for your program or your, your objectives. But as you get into trial planning and trial setup, do you lose sight of that? um for for you know there may be maybe a conflicting reason why okay a decision that might have been made in planning is is taken out and again not understanding the impact so you know i i think for from that standpoint if it gives you a kind of a if you will underlying themes that that go that are consistent throughout the study life cycle perhaps that's one way to think about it
2: yep i understand that it's almost um Maybe I'm veering off topic here, but I'll just put it out there because you guys think at a macro level. When I'm working with teams, I often like to ask them to create, pardon my term, a briefing document. Like what's the strategic context of the study? What's the most important objective outcome? And I don't necessarily mean clinical all the time. That's a primary outcome. But what are you trying to learn in this study? And it's interesting to me that I don't know that every study team gets asked to get very clear on that at the front end of their planning.
0: Is that a question, Shane, or just an observation right now? It's an observation uh, uh, I'm prepared to
2: challenge challenged on, like, hmm. <laughs> like do you have a best practice around that and how would you use that as um maybe an entry point to even think about how you're setting up your DCT trial
0: So is that a question in your mind of what are the what are the outcomes that I'm shooting mm-hmm. for in taking this approach not the KPIs that I'm typically looking at is this are there other KPIs yeah. or some other outcome I'm hoping to achieve?
2: Well, I'll make it very simplistic, but if we're in an experimental mode, maybe we have more tolerance. If if we're in a registrational mode, we definitely have less tolerance for data issues. So that to me should help us determine how we're going to fit the DCT methods into the study. And I I just, Wonder as experts in your relative disciplines, Dan and Mike, if you have those conversations at the front end of study planning with teams.
3: Well, I think you do have to take a step back though, because I think you're, you're, you're well, you brought up the life cycle is, you have know, program planning. Um, you know, you're, you're kind of as you move into different phases, you're absolutely right, the priorities may change. Um, so you know, again going back to thinking what the objectives of the program are in, in if you will, the experimental phase versus the presumably you've got some you've got some confirmation after that experimental phase that then may guide you a little bit differently than it might have um when you you're in that, that earlier phase, if that's what you're after.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um so we'll we'll park it, but I think in my mind all of these things fit together.
4: Yeah,
3: right. right. Go ahead,
4: Mike. I was going to say, I mean, Jane, you're touching on a very important part of what what we're seeing when it comes to DCTs in the industry. And you know, you, you talk about what are you trying to achieve, and usually you'll have a an impetus, a group that's very interested in DCT, and and you're starting to having to understand how do they define DCT? What does DCT mean to an organization? But to to your point on the application and and experimental versus regulatory submitted data. Um, A major area where we tend to see significant pushback is that organizations can build the capability, they can invest in the technology, they can design the processes to actually apply DCT. And every study team, when introduced to the concept, says it's a great idea, we really want to see this, this is going to help the patient, but don't do my study first. (laughs) And and it becomes a, a bit more of a change management challenge more than anything else that nobody's challenging the argument of the val the 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 importance and the impact but given that these are regulatory submitted data pieces and nobody wants to introduce risk to timelines that we are seeing pushback on adoption which is why having best practices with case studies with quantifiable evidence of the impact i know craig we talk about how can we continue to show quantifiable evidence across the industry this is where we are wanting to see a big push so that that hesitation is taken out of the system because nobody wants to go first in a heavily regulated industry where i would argue most people are a little bit more conservative than planning to begin with uh it's, it's an interesting challenge that we have to overcome
2: oh i've lived it so what i think i hear you say is even internally when there's a best practice the study team often operates in a not in my backyard study mentality it's like yep we know exactly what to do, but I don't want to be the first to try it in my org.
4: That's right. That's absolutely right. Where my study's different and, and it does it's not gonna work the same here. So I wanna go with the, the way I'm used to doing it for the past twenty years. And that's 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 the mindset we have to overcome.
3: Right. But I think you know, drawing a line between something like that versus you know, again that kind of as you progress through the phases of a clinical development program, you know again, just this is kind of connected to to you know, the things that, that we think about on a daily basis is, um, you know, is implementing a new method or element that you know might be a, like a DCT element. Um, does that change the way that your you know the, does that change your outcome measure in any meaningful way? You know, because again, the, the the key tenants and, and we talked about this a lot in our in designing the rubric too are. That kind of underlie um, almost uh, all of these are, you know, patient safety, right, and um, the integrity of the data. So, you know, you have to get kind of, those are kind of overarching for um, all of these domains, as we, because ultimately, that again does map back to, um, you know, the the objectives of a program and, and the purpose of conducting a clinical trial. Completely agree.
1: So the one thing I'll point out, Jane, I mean, you bring up a really good topic, but it's not a DCT only issue, right? You think of any clinical trial and the question you asked, you know, does the team really understand the objectives, whether it's um, the more junior members of the team, online strategy, the CRO personnel, the site personnel, it would, they would all benefit from having a true understanding of what we're trying to achieve here for different reasons so uh, Mike and Dana points out why this is particularly important in DCT in the context we have there but it's you know it's true for any program quite frankly and I don't think historically we've done a very good job of that.
2: Yep I agree but it's the bottom of the hour right? Well,
0: Dan, I see you came off here before uh, before I bounce over. Yeah, go ahead, Dan. And maybe,
3: just because I I, I, maybe maybe we can address this in in something that's simple. At least the the way I think about it is, you know, Jane, a simple thing from from being in the ECOA field for so many years is, you know, if you're asking the question, for example, can as I moved in between collecting EPRO from the patient at home versus at the site. You know, i think that if you're kind of asking that well how does that fit into kind of a best practice well you know i think there's plenty of evidence out there and as long as you're doing your your um, you know proper diligence equivalence migration practices that have been in place that shouldn't be a concern for a study team you know that that's an easy example but but you know i think it, it, where it gets can get a little bit more complicated is, is in you know as, as you make radical changes but you know, that framing that in the context, is that easier for the patient? They spend less time at the clinic, you're still getting the data the same way through the same interface. Um, you know, if applicable, that, that that's probably an easy example of how, you know, we, we can we made that shift and why study teams shouldn't be afraid to make that shift.
0: Well, as Jane mentioned, we've crossed over the bottom of the hour. And so that's our chance just to drop a reminder that if you joined us in the last few minutes, welcome. You've landed in the Decentralized Trials Club here on Clubhouse. This is TGIF DCT. We gather here every Friday, 12 to 1 Eastern, and we talk about all things making decentralized trials work. Work better, understand what's not working, whether technical, human factors ecosystem-wide or otherwise. Uh, If you have not already, be sure to click and follow the Decentralized Trials Club here on Clubhouse and poke around the room. See who is spending time with you. Check out some of the profiles, not only of the speakers, but the other folks in the audience who are sharing your interest. Could be some good pearls here for you to follow up with, connect with on LinkedIn, and continue to grow and expand your own networks. Today, we are talking about one of the outputs from DTRA from our best practices team that has been looking at how we can better collect best practices by first understanding a common definition of what is a best practice and the conclusion that they drew around a rubric. So we have here with us uh, two of the leaders from that team, Mike DeMarco from PwC, Dan DeBonis from, uh, from Signet Health, Uh, You would imagine every time I start to type your last names in to start an email, uh, the common denominator, I'm sure Google, my Gmail just pulls you both up now automatically. (laughs) Um, But it's it's great to have you both here. I was always joining me with Jane and Amir to talk about this topic or if there are others that are related and on your minds, because now is the time when we open up the room. Do you have a question? Do you have a perspective on best practices? Do you have a question on this initiative or how it fits into other challenges that you're looking to grapple? Feel free to take advantage of the little hand-waving icon at the bottom of the screen and we can pull you up on stage, have you join us here for a moment, or take advantage of the chat. Friends of ours like... Dina are active in the chat because they're busy with other things at work and multitasking so if um, if you're in that boat add your voice over there and we'll keep an eye and bring your perspectives into this conversation uh, either way lend your voice um, amir what other thoughts or questions are in your mind based on what you're hearing so far with dan and mike and how this fits into either your past work around thinking through best practices or thinking forward in terms of what might their work mean in terms of what else we may be thinking about a DTRA?
1: Sure, I mean first the practical thing, can we explain to uh, folks on the call and people who listen to us after, how do people access this, who can access it? That'd be good maybe for us to go okay. if one of Jane wants to do that.
0: Jane, as far as the output from this initiative, where is that going to land? How will people find this?
2: Well that is actually already publicly available on the DTRA.org website and there's a tile um, about resources and there's a specific domain for the best practices rubric. What's really important for me there personally is that while you can download it in a pdf format to your own desktop you can also submit feedback about how you think that needs to evolve or Maybe there's another line of inquiry that you think needs to be added over time, so it's out there for your use now, and we welcome your feedback.
0: That's, that's a great, nice. right? That's a and great point. You... All of these DTRA initiatives have that type of feedback feature, don't they, Jane?
2: And that's exactly right, and that will be our our standard. Um, by the way, if you would rather, you're welcome to send feedback directly to the secretariat at DTRA.org, or just ping us on LinkedIn.
1: Exactly, that's great. So, uh, Secretariat or Jane would be uh, happy to hear from you around those. or so Craig and I, but uh, probably most efficient through Secretariat and Jane. And as Craig, you said, everything we do are really living documents that will uh, continue to evolve. So I think that's always going to be useful. Um, I think you know having these best practices. Uh, I think it's an important initiative, and I think um, you know many times I've seen it you know not done. And so it's great to for us to do this as a service to the whole industry. So I'm very happy this initiative is having its output.
0: You know, one thing I'm uh, I'm excited to see is what we're able to do from here with a rubric like this. And I think one of the areas that I'm particularly keen in is. Look, within DTRA, we've got a great community of 125-plus organizations, uh, organizations that are using decentralized approaches across studies as sponsors, as tech companies, as CROs, site networks, and others. Um, How can we take advantage of this rubric to start to stimulate the community, the crowd, to start to share where there may be best practices and put this rubric to work? Um, so it'll be really interesting to start to find um, additional leaders that want to step forward and help as we think about activating the research community within DTRA and beyond to start to um, put best practices forward uh, across so many different areas and so many different challenges that are out there Uh, whether it's best practices around the challenges of helping to make these approaches more feasible and accessible for research sites, whether it's best practices around engaging with regulatory challenges at global scale. What one study team is finding as a vexing insurmountable issue, another may have already figured out. And part of the beauty of having a community here is being able to raise all boats. Um, Jane, is that some of the next step here on your mind as well?
2: Absolutely. And I was going to ask both Dan and Mike how we might crowdsource some of the best practices from out in the industry and then test them through the rubric lens.
4: Thanks, Jane. Yes, it's, it, we actually had actually started some of the pressure testing uh, last year because we wanted to make sure before we published this that it was resonating within DTRA and, and the broader group. Uh, we are actually in the process, uh, and I believe you had some engagement on this topic before I went on paternity leave, with setting up a, an intake form in which that we can show what a sample best practice could be, the level of rigor, uh, the level of information we're seeking to obtain, and ideally begin to crowdsource. And, and we want to be very conscientious that everybody's busy, so we can't make this so burdensome that nobody utilizes it, but we also need good information to work from. So, it, it would be ideal that we can actually have have a team that begins to finalize that type of intake form via the TTR community and begin soliciting feedback from the group. That'd be a next, great next step.
0: I'm really excited about that part. Um, it's really then takes all this great work so far and I'll help bring it to life. Um, Mike, uh, Dan, I'm not sure if you have other comments on what Mike had just shared in terms of some of the pressure testing and what some of those experiences looked like, and trying to put a few best practices through the machine.
3: I mean, man, Mike really led that part of it, but I think um, you know one of the things we've talked about is making sure we have the right um, kind of subject matter expertise retained within um you know the different the different domains and you know i think as we move forward too that's something we may be looking towards the broader community for
0: fair point as as work in any initiative evolves just like as any company continues to evolve and grow fresh leaders new opportunities start to emerge and in many ways this is a really you know exciting evolution for this particular initiative so maybe this is like a soft call what do you think jane if there are folks that are actively listening right now and find this type of work interesting want to get involved um getting in touch with voices they're hearing today and if they're not sure how secretariat at dtra.org sounds like a right way for those interested in working on um carrying best practices forward from a rubric, starting to activate the community to to share best practices. The call sounds like it's open.
2: It is open. And I would say that that Next Horizon is just preparing to launch. So it's like a double click on the great work that Dan and Mike's team put together. My hope is that organizations are gonna be willing to share best practices because I don't think this is intellectual property I think this is an all raise all boats ask
0: well I think that's going to be an interesting part of the challenge for for a team here um is to understand those boundaries um of what people are comfortable sharing how to get those calls out um and is it all pay it forward is it all for karma Are there acknowledgements or other things that people may look for in terms of being motivated or incentivized to share a best practice? What are the best practices in stimulating people to share best practices? Amir, as our uh, on-call psychiatrist, do you have any uh, tips or tricks on your mind for, for behavior change and encouraging sharing here?
1: Well, as I always like to quote people, uh, become enlightened not when they uh, see the light, but when they feel the heat. So I think um, that's the best way. If we have a behavioral incentives for folks to do that, for sure, uh, that's the best tip I can give you.
0: I thought you're going to come back to me with, um, and why do you feel that way, Craig? <laughs> but uh, <laughs> and then send me a bill in the mail. Um, Dan, Mike, where, where else are you excited for this work to go from here? I mean, you've done some great work bringing this to life. Is that is that really the next tranche uh, here is around stimulating community sharing and building out some of those resources?
4: It, it is. I mean, even when we started this journey over a year ago, the team was more than eager to share their experiences and, and what has been working well and the challenges that they've had. I, I personally am very excited to see where across the clinical trial life cycle are we actually going to find successful experiences in Dct and where will it be lighter um, we're we're kind of on a journey with Dct it's emerging applications are being utilized in various parts of the life cycle particularly protocol design and the early trial setup but i i'm my hypothesis is that we're going to see a lot of best practices early on in the life cycle but maybe a little lighter during, during middle of execution, close out, study wrap up, study uh, clinical synopsis authoring. And I, I, I'm just very excited to see how this might give us a pulse on the adoption of DCT, where it's worked well, therapeutic areas where it's been most prevalent and, and areas where maybe they're encountering challenges. I, I just think there's a whole world we're gonna dive into that, that hasn't quite been able to be um, acknowledged quite yet. And uh, this framework will help us get there.
3: Yeah, I think you know, Mike. I think you're right. I think you part of at least what we're, you know, what we're seeing is just the maturing of you know the DCT industry, if you will, and and you know the the acceptance is, and part of that is having these underlying you know the best practices because as we move from sort of, you know, the the you know the COVID kind of implementation, emergency implementation, you know, again thinking about the pathway here, where you know during COVID there were a lot of you know emergency procedures in place. And now you know now you're starting to see even regulators like with the EMEA uh, coming out with some of their guidance you know to to kind of fill in some of the gaps there and at least um, provide companies with some structure as they think about how they're implementing different methodologies and and kind of because you know, that's always we, we've probably probably forgot to say that you know that's one of the first questions that you get asked is what do the regulators think? So we're starting to get some of the pieces in place, I think, for this to really move forward in a meaningful way.
0: Jane, what else is coming up in the weeks ahead for DTRA initiatives and outputs? What can people start to look forward to and what might we start to be seeing more of here own Clubhouse as that happens?
2: Oh, great question. So our goal now is to make sure that every initiative team gets the opportunity to talk about the work that they went through, their learnings and surprises, and their ask for the community to help us grow this expertise. So one of the initiatives that's been out in the world for a while to DTRA members, but needs to get more public visibility is the DCT KPIs, which in my mind are tied somewhat to best practices. So I think we need to um, find an upcoming slot for the leaders of that initiative to come and talk to us about their thought process and how they landed on the initial 10 metrics that they think are most relevant to measuring impact in DCTs. That's an example. Um, I don't think we've yet heard here about the outcomes from the um, measuring impact of DCTs initiative. We did have a bit of a highlight reel at SCOPE yesterday, but you didn't have a whole hour, so I think those are two examples of upcoming topics that should be here in the next six weeks or so.
0: And that's gonna be fabulous to for folks to stay current on. And Amir, um, some plans for Clubhouse. I, I guess we'll we're starting with the team to uh to get our our recent recordings and our new recordings uh, propagated and pushed out through some podcast platforms?
1: Absolutely. Thank you to Paige, uh, who's done a lot work. And thank you for recording the intros and stuff, Greg. I think it's going to be great for folks to be able to also access all this uh, podcast formats. So and we'll pull up at least the first top 10 first, and then we'll go from there. But yes, we'll be doing a podcast, and I think you and Paige done all the heavy lifting there.
0: That's right. Just in case any of you had trouble hearing Amir there, we are um, now getting our ducks in order, finally, to get these replays available on your favorite podcast platforms. Uh, So going forward, our our new gatherings will be be pushed out there, any of those that we've been uh, bringing to life in the calendar year 2023. And then we'll also start to prioritize those that are recorded from 2022 uh, based on which had the most listenership here on Clubhouse. Uh, either way, all of those episodes are available for you right now on the Clubhouse app. If you tap Decentralized Trials in your upper left, visit the Club page, you'll find all of our replays from um, uh, probably dating back to uh, 2021, I believe. Some late 21ers. Boy, that's, that feels like a, a pandemic ago by now. Um, we're getting ready to wrap up things from here. Mike, Dan, any final perspective on this topic or just the field in general before we close for today?
4: Happy to go first here, Dan. I, I think ultimately we're very excited. There's so much information, so much experience, so many ideas that, that everyone in DTRA and beyond are are willing and ready to share that it's it's comforting to know that we have a, a baseline in which to digest, share, and, and kind of communicate what everyone in the organizations across DTR are doing. And I, I can't wait for the next phase here.
3: Yeah, I agree. I mean I think DTRI really is is the unique organization in that so many of the stakeholders, you know, you look across and so many of the stakeholders are involved, and there's so many people that are passionate about um, you know, the, the non decentralized trials, but you know, running trials more efficiently and, and, and you know, the benefits and come of that. And, you know, it's, it's really, it is a unique organization. I'm excited because I think, um, you know, it, it, it is the right form to address these kinds of issues going forward. And, and um, you know, we just, we, we, it's really been a pleasure working with some of the talented folks in um, uh, doing this rubric as one example of that.
0: Sounds like a lot to stay tuned for. Uh, look forward to having next week, Brad Hightower, Scott Stout, Ted Barteson, and all of you joining us as we talk about a clever way to use some of these decentralized methods that maybe treating physicians can start to get engaged in new ways and even start to be creative in thinking about how uh, a physician can prescribe a trial uh, within their practice. But until then, wishing you all a fabulous weekend. Uh, Amir, any other final words from you, my my friend?
1: Yeah, can you predict next week if we're gonna get hoodie brad or other brads? I know he has a few personalities.
0: <sighs> Boy, that is that is quite cool. We might have to start a LinkedIn poll on that one <laughs> and then have the, uh, the big reveal. Uh, <laughs> Jane, do you want to take the bait on that one?
2: Oh, heck no. I was going to say, what's the over-under on the Super Bowl?
1: (laughs) I'm not the one to answer that one for sure. But I would say, for those who don't know, Brad had a funny sort of uh, graphic on LinkedIn where he had uh, pictures of himself in various things, including a hoodie, and uh, so it's fun. So we were just wondering which personality within those new pictures will come to us.
0: He was having a fun time, poking fun at being the guy not going to Scope on, uh, yeah. on LinkedIn. But as Jane notes, for those of you celebrating Valentine's Day or Super Bowl Sunday, wishing you all the best this weekend. We look forward to regathering next week on Friday, whether it's wings and beer, champagne and chocolates, or whatever it is you look forward to the most, wishing you all the best. Thanks again for joining in today.